Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. We live in dangerous times. Zealots on the extreme right are working to ban books which actively teach our history, particularly around civil rights and racial justice. And that's why it's so important to remember and share our history on these issues. Our guest today is Samuel Friedman. Samuel is a journalist, author, and Pulitzer Prize finalist. His new book, Into the Bright Sunshine, Young Hubert Humphrey and the Fight for Civil Rights, is now available. All my life, I loved and admired Hubert Humphrey. He believed that public service was a noble endeavor. He believed that his adversaries need not be his enemies. We simply kept the face up to this question. Are we as a nation now ready to guarantee equal protection of the laws as declared in our Constitution? every American, regardless of his race, his color, or his creed. The sullen revolt against President Truman reaches its climax at Birmingham under the state rights banner. Venerable Alfalfa Bill Murray comes out of retirement to join in the protest against the president's civil rights program. I base my entire candidacy on the belief which comes from the very depths of my soul, which comes from basic religious conviction that the American people will stand up, that they will stand up for justice and fair play. I'm Samuel Friedman. I'm a professor of journalism at Columbia University, now former New York Times reporter and columnist, and the author of 10 books. My most recent one, Into the Bright Sunshine, is about Hubert Humphrey's early life and career, and really about what I call the proto-civil rights movement of the 1940s. And I would like to ban book banners. Sorry. Not sorry. Sam, thank you so much for being here. Before we get started, just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. I've spent my life in two ways as a writer of nonfiction and as a professor of nonfiction. Came up through newspapers, small papers in New Jersey, mid-sized in Illinois, then on to the New York Times, and moved into doing magazine writing and ultimately books, and I've now written 10 of them. And along the way, I also began teaching journalism at Columbia University, including my favorite part of that, which is teaching a course in how to write nonfiction books, which to date has gotten 108 of my students' book contracts. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, it's really been a labor of love. That's the ripple effect right there. You have a new book. It's called Into the Bright Sunshine, and it focuses on the early life of Hubert Humphrey. Remind our listeners about who Humphrey was. That's a really important question to answer, because I think a lot of people will barely remember his name. Hubert Humphrey died in early 1978, and so you'd have to be a certain age even to have been following the news when he was still a part of political life. But for those who know him, either firsthand remembering him or having studied him, it's probably as LBJ's vice president, both during the glorious passage of the civil rights laws and during the tragic escalation of the Vietnam War, and knowing him perhaps as a candidate who barely lost to Richard Nixon in 1968. 
And then had a few more races for president that all ended up really with him being laughing stock. And a lot of his reputation, frankly, also never recovered from his support for Vietnam. But there is this earlier part of his life that I've really focused on, which is incredibly idealistic and valorous, in which he was one of the great leaders in this country on civil rights during the 1940s and 1950s. He might have been the most important white person in the country certainly the most important white political figure, elected official on civil rights in the entire country. And that's what made him so integral to working with LBJ in the 60s. But it also made him a key person in this really undeservedly obscure part of the freedom movement, which was the period in the 1940s. People tend to think of the movement beginning in the mid-50s with Dr. King leading the Montgomery bus boycott, with the Supreme Court declaring school segregation unconstitutional in Brown versus Board of Ed. But those things didn't come from nowhere. And there had been all this activity during World War II, a lot of it motivated by World War II. And immediately afterwards, that led to some really important breakthroughs in civil rights. And Humphrey was a key figure in a lot of that. Your book basically ends at the 1948 Democratic nominating convention. Humphrey was just a mayor from Minnesota at the time, but went on to be a senator, vice president of the United States, as you said, and the Democratic nominee for president. So I think my question is, why focus only on the early part of his life before he became such a national figure? I had a couple of reasons for focusing primarily on Humphrey's earlier life, on this really this first chapter of his public life. One of them, quite simply, is that a lot more work has been done, including by, on top of everyone else, the great Robert Caro, about Humphrey during his years as Johnson's vice president. And even some of the existing biographies of Humphrey very much focus on him as senator, him as vice president, him as presidential candidate. So I felt that was really pretty well-known territory had been covered not only by the magnificent Caro, but by some other very good biographers already. Whereas I thought this earlier part of his life was really terra incognita. It was the unknown land for a lot of writers and a lot of readers. And it was also a way for me to look at this early part of the civil rights movement, in which Humphrey had a leading role, but it was also who his allies were, who his adversaries were, the way his efforts within the Democratic Party ended up working hand in glove with the protest movement outside the party led by A. Philip Randolph, the great black labor and civil rights leader, for instance, and the way what he was doing tied in with the movement of black GIs for what they call double V, double victory. We're going to defeat fascism on the battlefields of Europe and the Pacific, and they're going to come back and demand an end to fascism in America in the form of the Jim Crow system. And by the way, a very similar sensibility was true of Jewish American soldiers in the war too. So it's the way Humphrey was working as part of this broader two-pronged movement, insiders and outsiders, who are asking a question that, unfortunately, we're still asking right now, which is, what kind of country do we want this to be? Do we want this to be a country of inclusive democracy, or do we want this to be a country of Christian nationalism and white supremacy and a kind of autocracy, or at least democracy only for those who are deserved or who are deemed to be deserving of it? And you just answered it. But if we can unpack it a little bit, he died 45 years ago. Why is it relevant today? Why is his life relevant today? There are two reasons why I think Humphrey is extremely relevant. The most front of mind one for us right now at this post 
January 6th moment, in this period when we're still in broadly the Trump era, and Trumpism are dominating so much of the political landscape, that the battles Humphrey was part of in the 1940s are scarily parallel to the battles now. I don't care who's in the audience. I'm the least racist person in this room. Okay, Vice President Biden, let me ask you very quickly, and then I have a follow-up question for you. Abraham Lincoln here is one of the most racist presidents we've had in modern history. He pours fuel on every single racist fire. He was advocating on behalf of the ideas of an inclusive democracy that really fully embraced Black people, immigrants, Jews, Catholics. I mean, the language about LGBTQ really wasn't that much of a factor then. And you didn't have the presence of immigrants from Asia and Central and South America and the Caribbean Basin to the degree we do since then. But the basic frame was the same. Is this an inclusive democracy that embraces everyone? Or is this a country in which you have to be a white conservative Protestant to fully belong? And which the presumption is the political power should rest with them. And at best, it's at the sufferance of that part of the population to determine who gets to fully participate. And the battles that Humphrey was fighting along those lines in 1948, he was fighting against breakaway segregationists in the Democratic Party, whose goal in 1948 was to make sure that the presidential election ended up, and this is going to sound familiar, in the House of Representatives. And what was going to happen in the House of Representatives? The Southern segregationists, the white supremacists were going to have the pivotal votes, and they were going to make the Democrats or Republicans come to them and agree to continue segregation in order to have their candidate elected president. That's so similar to what Trump wanted to do in 2020 and on January 6th, get it to the House of Representatives, rather than letting the people's ballots declare the winner. Also, the foes who Humphrey had at this time are parallel. There's a minister and political leader named Gerald L.K. Smith, who was absolutely Trump-like or DeSantis-like in his political positions. He was the one, Smith, who created the America First Party. That term goes back to him. We hear it again now, but it started with Gerald L.K. Smith, who's someone Humphrey tangled with. As I said, segregationist politicians like Strom Thurmond, one time senator from South Carolina, who ran for president in 48 on this breakaway Dixie crap party. And Humphrey also did battle against the people in the passive middle who weren't going to join Gerald L.K. Smith or join the Dixie crap party, but told themselves the pretty lie that only the really wacko people would do that, that you'd never get a substantial number of, quote, decent people to align with extremism, with fanaticism. But we've seen that put to lie again and again. And so in that respect, reading about Humphrey and the movement of the 40s, I think has a lot of relevance and a lot of lessons for us today. And the second reason to go back to this period of Humphrey life is to really fill in the historical narrative of the civil rights movement to let people know that the events of the 1950s, the Brown versus Board of Ed decision, the Montgomery bus boycott, the things that seemed to propel the civil rights movement, they didn't come out of nowhere that there were tremendous efforts in the 40s on issues like desegregating the military, fair employment practices, an end to the restrictive covenants in housing that would keep blacks and Jews and Catholics 
and Japanese Americans and indigenous people out of certain neighborhoods, that those battles, some of which were won, some of which were lost, but all of which were vigorously fought, those really anticipate what's going to happen in the 50s. interesting because Humphrey came of age during the Roosevelt presidency, which largely defined, I think, progressivism in economic terms, but not so much in racial terms and social justice terms as we think of progressivism today. How did it come to be that Humphrey brought the ideas of racial justice into the progressive worldview? First of all, Alyssa, you're absolutely right about what the gap was in the New Deal. The New Deal defined equality in terms of economic class, which is an absolutely valid way of doing it, but an incomplete one. And because FDR believed that he needed the votes of the Democratic Party, which at that time controlled the whole South and was totally supportive of the Jim Crow system, because FDR didn't want to lose those votes, he basically had New Deal legislation written and implemented in a way that it omitted Black Americans from a lot of the benefits. Federal Housing Administration in the New Deal explicitly said you cannot loan these low-cost uh, uh, loans that were intended so that white people could gain equity. You cannot give them to black people. This is the most progressive piece of legislation that may have ever happened on the soil of America, explicitly excluded black people. Social Security didn't include agricultural workers and domestic workers in the Jim Crow South. That was the majority of the work that Black men and Black women did. So right there, they were written out of the, one of the key benefits of the system. And there are other examples, too. So Humphrey, in a really amazing way, took the best parts of the New Deal, its concern with economic justice, but extended it into racial justice and into battles against religious discrimination. And that comes, I think, very much out of his personal experience. He had made it into his mid-20s without having deep feelings about these issues of racial and religious prejudice. And then all of a sudden, he goes down to graduate school for one year at Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge. He's hardly ever been out of upper Midwest in his whole life. And he goes there, and in that one year, 1939 to 1940, he gets, and I'm not, never going to disown this word, he gets woke. There's no better word for it. He goes to LSU. He has Jewish classmates whose families are in Europe and have vanished into the Nazi extermination system. He lives next door to a Black neighborhood in Baton Rouge, and every day his trip from his apartment to the LSU campus takes him through that neighborhood. And he is experiencing a Jim Crow system firsthand for the first time in his life. Jim Crow railroad cars, black people being afraid to get in the same elevator with a white person in the state capitol for fear they'll get in trouble. White motorists shouting racial epithets at black passersby. He's seeing this for the first time in his life, and it is boggling his mind. And then to top it all off, he studies there with this exiled anti-Nazi one-eighth Jewish professor a man named Rudolf Eberly, who teaches Humphrey 
what Eberle had learned as a sociologist studying the rise of the Nazis, which is the way extremist movements start out by picking off the most vulnerable fringe groups. I want to say, think of trans people right now, right? You pick off the most vulnerable group, then you proceed to the next most vulnerable group. And by starting out with the most vulnerable, you get the normative conservatives to allow you to do it, to think that they can get some political benefit by letting the extremists rule the roost for a while and not realizing that there's no end to who's going to be victimized. And so those three experiences during Humphrey's year at LSU change his DNA. When he goes back to Minneapolis after that year, he says that not only is he alert to these issues of racism and anti-Semitism now, but really importantly, Alyssa, he understands racism is not just a Southern problem. Because Minneapolis had a horrific history of racism as well as anti-Semitism, and Humphrey up to this point had been oblivious to it. But taking the experiences he had in Baton Rouge, he goes back to Minneapolis with a whole new set of eyes. And that's really what sets him on the path for his political career in those respects, because he's a very smart person. By all accounts, he was a superb student, but he really operates from his gut. He really operates finally in an experiential way. And if he can't feel viscerally why an issue matters to him, why it matters to him in his heart and his gut, why Blacks, Jews, labor union people are treated the way they are, then he can't be active on it. But if he does feel it, then it means the whole world to him. I mean, that's how it's supposed to be. And I think privilege is the idea that you can live a life by not being affected or impacted by the most vulnerable among us. That is true privilege. I want to talk about Humphrey's 1948 convention speech, but I do want you to give us a little bit more context about what was happening in the country and in the world at the time he gave it. The road to Hubert Humphrey's landmark civil rights speech at the 48 convention really begins in World War II in a certain way, because you have the mass mobilization of American men and women to fight fascism, to fight racial supremacy, to fight religious supremacy in Nazi Germany, of course, fascist Italy, and in Japan as well, because the way Imperial Japan treated the Koreans and the Chinese and the Filipinos was nothing if not a form of racial supremacy on the part of the Japanese. So when America puts its gigantic shoulder to the wheel to defeat fascism, it raises both implicitly and explicitly this question. What about the home front? If we've paid all this blood and treasure to defeat Hitler, what do we do about the Jim Crow system? What do we do about pervasive Jew-hating? What do we do about at that time, rampant anti-Catholic feeling in this country? Do we just say that doesn't matter when we come back? So that question was in the air, and it was being posed explicitly by Black GIs, by Black political leaders, and also by Jewish war veterans and Jewish leaders. And that's part of the important backdrop to 1948. And so heading into the 1948 Democratic Convention, the biggest issue facing the party is how it's going to stand on civil rights. We must now focus the direction of that progress towards the, towards the realization of a full program of civil rights to all. This convention must set out more specifically 
the directions in which our party efforts are to go. We can be proud that we can be guided by the courageous, trailblazing of two great democratic presidents. We can be proud of the fact that our great and beloved immortal leader Franklin Roosevelt gave us guidance. And we can be proud of the fact, we can be proud of the fact that Harry Truman has had the courage to give to the people of America the new Emancipation Proclamation. What a lot of people who admire for entirely justified reasons Franklin Roosevelt don't understand is Franklin Roosevelt had made a devil's bargain throughout his presidency that in order to put forward the economic programs of the New Deal, he would tolerate the Jim Crow system in the South. He would not confront the Democratic Party in the South, which at that point was an all-white segregationist party, and dare them with the prospect of segregation being ended because he felt like he needed their votes. And so the Democratic Party, every convention under FDR, when it came around to say, what's our policy on civil rights, they'd use fuzzy language that would allow the Southerners to say that FDR had basically endorsed what they called states' rights, which meant the right of every state to create its own policies on any issue that's not explicitly in the Constitution. And by the Southern white way of thinking, that meant the Jim Crow system. So since the Constitution didn't specifically say racial integration, every state got to choose its own path. So FDR has died by the 1948 convention. Harry Truman has risen from the vice presidency to being the president. He feels very vulnerable even within his party. He's facing a difficult re-election campaign. He'd like to just kick this can down the road. He would like to do what FDR did and have fuzzy language in the party platform. And by the way, party platforms at this time mattered immensely, much more than I think they do in the present day. And heading into the convention, you had a group of liberals, including Hubert Humphrey, demanding that the party embrace civil rights at last. You had the Southern segregationists led by people like Strom Thurmond and Fielding Wright, the governor of Mississippi and the founder of the Dixiecrat movement, saying, if you so much as endorse civil rights, we're going to walk out on the party, which meant a threat to help defeat Harry Truman. And then you had outside the party, the great labor and civil rights leader, A. Philip Randolph. And this is an unbelievable moment that a lot of people don't know about, putting together a mass movement to have black men since it was all men in the military at this time, black men refused to register for the draft or serve in the military. Draft resistance on a mass scale, unless Harry Truman will desegregate the armed forces. So all of this is coming together at the time of the convention. And it's just four days in Philadelphia when this is going to be fought out. And all that precedes the speech that Hubert Humphrey gives. So when he on the afternoon of July 14th, goes to the podium to give a speech on behalf of the civil rights plank. He knows he's defying Harry Truman. He's had Truman's leaders on the convention for tell him, your career is over. You do this and you are toast, or whatever the 1948 version of toast was. He's fearful that it is the end of his political career, but he decides to give the speech anyway. and. He's not a nationally known figure at this time. He's 37 years old. He's been mayor of a mid-sized city for three years. And here he is going against the president's wishes. And he gives this speech. He says the famous line of speech is that the Democratic Party has to step out of the shadow of states' rights 
and walk forthrightly into the bright sunshine of human rights. That's where that phrase comes from, into the bright sunshine. And that's an electrifying phrase. And he also talks about the fact that we can't be a leader in the world at the time of the Cold War if we're hypocritical about equality in our own country. And the other brilliant stroke in this, and this comes from one of Humphrey's close associates, a future diplomat named Eugenie Anderson, she helps craft language for Humphrey's speech that says, all we're doing is espousing what Harry Truman had espoused a couple of years ago, which is true, but Truman had backed away from some of his own civil rights positions. So they're hugging Truman to them and saying, we're just doing what you wanted us to do. And it wins this vote from the floor of the conventional in Philadelphia, narrowly, but it carries forth. And it then sets off celebration in some quarters of the convention and absolute revulsion on the part of the segregationists. And those are the Dixiecrats. Those are the Dixiecrats. And a few hours later, they walk out of the convention. Now, what happened when they abandoned the Democratic Party? Where did they go? The Dixiecrats already had this planned out. They knew that if they walked out, they would form their own new party. It's officially called the States Rights Democratic Party, but everyone knows it by its nickname, the Dixiecrats. And they had a convention a couple of days later in Birmingham, Alabama, and they nominated Strom Thurmond for president and Fielding Wright for vice president and had a platform that fully called for segregation and the Jim Crow system. And their hope was that they would take enough votes from the Democratic Party in the South that what would happen in 1948 is this. Tom Dewey running as a Republican and Harry Truman running as a Democrat would win some states, but neither of them would get 270 electoral votes. The Dixiecrats would get maybe 40, 50, 60 electoral votes in the South. And what that meant is what Donald Trump hoped would happen in 2020, that there would be no winner declared. And that in those cases, the House of Representatives votes. And what the Dixiecrats hoped is that then they'd have all the power. They would have these pivotal votes in the House of Representatives. And basically, if Truman wanted to be president or if Dewey wanted to be president, they would have to go on bended knee. The rule of law, our constitution, and the will of the people prevailed. Our democracy pushed, tested, threatened, proved to be resilient, true and strong. Ceremonies at state capitals across the country are usually a mere formality. But with the president refusing to accept defeat, the electors today found themselves in the spotlight. Arizona cast its vote in an undisclosed location out of fear of a violent response from Trump supporters refusing to accept the will of the people. To these segregationists, to this white supremacist, and say, okay, we're going to let you keep segregation. We won't mess with it. Just give us your votes on the House of Representatives to elect either Harry Truman or Thomas Dewey. And fortunately, Truman ended up winning more than enough votes so that didn't happen. But their scheme was a pretty demonically smart one. And of course, the modern GOP, they like to claim the mantle of the party of Lincoln. And I feel like prior to Humphrey's speech, they might have been able to hold that claim. But then 16 years later, when Humphrey was the Democratic nominee for vice president, Nelson Rockefeller tried to give a similar speech at the Republican nominating convention and was basically violently booed almost off the stage. 
Would you say that Humphrey was responsible for the realignment of the parties? Humphrey and his speech definitely start the realignment we've seen because the Dixiecrats, the segregationist wing of the Democratic Party, leave. They vote against a Democrat for the first time in memory in 1948. Now then in 52 and 56 and 60, Adlai Stevenson twice and John F. Kennedy once try to soft pedal civil rights and win back the Southern votes and do so to a certain extent. But in 1964, that becomes untenable because LBJ, with Humphreys as vice president, is running on civil rights. Barry Goldwater's extremist movement, which is against the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and against the expansion of racial equality in the South, takes control of the Republican convention. It's the Goldwater supporters who were booing Nelson Rockefeller at that convention. And that really seals the deal right there. It is essential that this convention repudiate here and now any doctrine any doctrinaire militant minority, whether communist, Ku Klux Klan, or Bircher. In 1964, you have a Republican candidate winning the South. You have the beginning of Southern segregationists like Strom Thurmond and moving from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party to run for higher office. And the next stop after midway points with George Wallace and Richard Nixon's Southern strategy and Ronald Reagan, the terminus is Trumpism. Yeah, I want to put this now in the social context of our time. I mean, it's 75 years later. The GOP is fighting to constrain civil liberties and roll back racial justice progress, roll back women's rights. I just wonder what would Hubert Humphrey be using the Democratic Party to do to fight this? Humphrey was a great coalition builder, and I think he would be looking for the broadest coalition he could form on behalf of democracy. When he was mayor of Minneapolis, he was able to bring moderate Republicans into the same big tent of his as labor unions. He was able to bring management, people from liberal churches, war veterans, all kinds of people who might disagree on certain specific issues, but broadly believed in inclusive democracy. And I think he'd be doing the same thing now. I think he'd be wanting to make sure that certainly that sliver of rational Republicans, the never-Trumpers, are fully included in the movement for democracy in this country. And I think he would also understand the power of really strong public rhetoric in making the case. His speech in 48 is a great example of how you can change minds for worse, or in that case, for better with terrific oratory. And I think he'd be a voice that would be really important to have out there. I mean, we certainly have some of them in the progressive movement. It's not that we're totally absent them. But as much of an admirer of the Biden presidency and of Joe Biden as I am, he's not an eloquent public speaker. He's not a great orator who can put over the case the way I think it needs to be put over. And I think that's a gap that Humphrey would have helped to fill. 
And I also think that everyone's looking for the soundbite now. So there is no long form speeches really anymore. It always feels like that the sound bites are bookended by just words. It doesn't feel impassioned. It feels like all of these speeches are to facilitate a soundbite. In the decade after Humphrey's speech, you got to look at the Supreme Court. Like you said before, they made some critical decisions in moving his cause forward, notably Brown versus Board of Education. And again, in the spirit of relating this to right now, we have a very different Supreme Court today. So what do you think the next decade, two decades, is likely to bring for us? And is history cyclical? First of all, I think one other part of Humphrey's model is he came out of local politics. He paid attention, not just to national races or even statewide ones, but mayoralties and legislative races. And I think one thing a lot of us progressives have learned the hard way is that people on the right wing were playing a very long game of getting their voters out in these low turnout state legislature races and getting control of redistricting that way and getting control of state legislatures so they could pass voter suppression laws and don't say gay laws and run down the list. So I think Humphrey would be a good example of the importance of paying attention to every down ballot race, not only the high turnout races. And ultimately, you're going to have to win up and down the ballot in order to have the votes in Congress, in the Senate particularly, to put better people on the Supreme Court when the vacancies finally show up, or perhaps even to get the votes in Congress to put term limits on justices or expand the number of justices or whatever the remedy might be. And another thing you said, Alyssa, a great point, but I want to go back to it, is about the culture of soundbiteism, which being a journalist, I'm all too aware of. But the interesting thing is Humphrey, when he failed as an orator, was because he spoke too long. And in fact, he'd given this endless speech to the AFL labor union a few months before the 1948 convention. He thought it was a big success. His wife, Muriel, who was a great, savvy political advisor to him his whole life, said to him afterwards, Hubert, the speech doesn't have to be eternal to be immortal. And with that in mind, his speech at the convention in 48 was only 10 minutes long. And in fact, it was a soundbite that stayed with people. The soundbite was, you know, step out of the shadows of states' rights and walk forthrightly into the bright sunshine of human rights. That's what people remember, phrase that took 10 seconds. A lot of the other parts of the speech are lost to history, unless you want to read the transcript or go on YouTube to hear the audio. Would have made a great tweet. Yeah, that's succinctly did it. And, you know, think of how many of Dr. King's speeches or Malcolm X's speeches came down to a phrase about the promissory note or about the bullet or the ballot. So many of these speeches, even if they're eloquent all the way through, end up yielding something, as you said, Alyssa, that's no longer than a tweet. So obviously where we are right now in just over a year, we'll have a Democratic nominating convention. And I'm curious to know if you think there's a Hubert Humphrey in the party 
you know, just waiting to take the national stage and move and inspire the nation forward like he did? It's a great question of where Humphrey is now. In a certain way, the person who had the most catalytic effect similar to Humphrey wasn't the young person. It was Bernie Sanders in 2016, in a certain way. Or, you know, you could liken Humphrey's 48 speech to the speech Barack Obama gave in 2004 that put him on the national map. And when people ask me, as they often do, who reminds you of Humphrey in the Senate now, I would say Cory Booker for his optimism and verve and Amy Klobuchar for her great sense of retail politics. And of course, being literally right out of Humphrey's state. I know when Congressman White, the last black person to serve in Congress before the fall, the god awful fall of the backlash after Reconstruction fell. He gave this famous speech where he talked about the phoenix will rise, that one day black people will serve in this body. And here we are in the Senate making history, the first time three African-Americans have even served together, Republican and Democrat, and we all came together leading on Kamala's bill. And, and that if we passed this, it would not only do something substantive to make a difference on the books of the American federal system, but God, it would speak volumes to the racial pain and the hurt of generations. I do not need my colleague, the senator from Kentucky, to tell me about one lynching in this country. But I can't say that there's a particular person who I see bubbling just under the surface, as Humphrey was, who seems poised to give that speech. But then again, part of what made it so powerful is that people weren't thinking it was going to come from him. And I'm not sure, other than among real political professionals, how many people were expecting Barack Obama to have the breakthrough speech he did in 04. So I, I'm just not sure who that person could be, but I hope that person is out there slyly on the radar, ready to do that. Because one of the issues, as we all know, for the Democratic Party is a lot of the leadership is extremely up in years. Nancy Pelosi, although she finally stepped down, but Joe Biden, you know, Steny Hoyer, although he stepped down. You know, I have to ask you, because obviously the right is pushing to ban books that teach our history, specifically on racial justice. Are you worried that your book will be banned in parts of the country? Uh, it's a compliment, I guess, to say I would be worried about it. If you can ban books about the Ruby Bridges school desegregation case and Amanda Gorman's poem from the inaugural and novels by Toni Morrison, who's a Nobel laureate, then it's all up for grabs. I'll tell you an example I've written about that I think is emblematic of how troubling the situation is. A writer I know, Andrew Marinus, who lives in Nashville, has written a number of books for young adult readers about sports and social justice. Really good books and well-reviewed, very cherished by readers. And most of them he would get offers to talk at libraries, particularly around Tennessee because he lives there. And he had a book that came out about a year and a half ago, biography of Glenn Burke, former Los Angeles Dodgers baseball player, who's the first person in MLB to come out as gay. And he got no requests to speak about that book. No one ever said your book is banned, or no librarian ever said, I would love to teach your book, but I'm scared that I'm going to be doxxed and harassed or fired if I have a book talk for your book. But that's the kind of thing that's going on. So here's this wonderful, affirming book for young readers about sports and about coming out as gay. And it 
mysteriously or not so mysteriously doesn't get Andrew any book talks, even though for his other books, he would often get those kinds of gigs. So if it can happen to him into a book like that, and Amanda Gorman in a book about Ruby Bridges, there's no telling what could become of it. What could become of my book or so many others? Look, we've already seen with Tanahasi Coates's book and on and on. I know. It's just, I can't believe we've gotten to this point. It's so wild to see things that my parents told me that my grandparents fought for, and now I'm having to fight for it for my kid. It's just, it's a really surreal place to be. And the history repeating itself, if that is true, and we do not learn from our past mistakes in this country, I have very little, and my listeners are going to freak out that I'm even saying this because... I have not said this out loud, but I have very little hope right now for this country. Believe me, I have plenty of times of despair. And Well, what gives you hope? That's usually my last question for my listeners, so it's perfect. What gives you hope? Well, if I look at the example of Humphrey that I wrote about in Into the Bright Sunshine, he was fighting against enormous obstacles. Segregation was the law of the land. Anti-Semitism was practiced routinely. I mean, to say nothing of the subjugation of women, the total non-recognition of gay people. It's not like he could solve all those issues. All of them weren't on the table to the same degree at that time. But he faced an incredible uphill battle and didn't win on every part of it, but made enough progress on it. And I think people also get mobilized in the face of terrible danger. And if there's anything we can say about Trumpism and DeSantisism and everything you're talking about, the book bans, the reversal of Roe v. Wade, the anti-trans movement that clearly intends to next take on things like gay marriage, is that it shakes people out of their complacency. There is no doubt for a lot of people, especially I think younger people or more peripheral voters, who might not turn out, who would say, ah, it doesn't really matter which party wins. I think people know it does matter. And they also understand they have a lot personally at stake here, that it's not that these issues are distant from their day-to-day -day lives. Well, Samuel Friedman, you give me hope. You give me hope, Alyssa. You've been on all the right barricades at all the right times, so come on. I appreciate that. Thank you. But you really do. You give me hope. Thank you for telling the story. Thank you for being a guest on the podcast. Thank you for all you do. Thank you so much. Real honor to be on this podcast. And don't forget, as I said in the civil rights movement, my feet are tired, but my soul is rested. I was a 26-year-old young man. First time I met Hubert Humphrey. And he was barging across a hotel lobby to go to his speech during the 1972 campaign. And I barged in through all the staff members and shook his hand. And I told him I was from Arkansas and I thanked him for that 1948 speech. And I thanked him for helping to engineer the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And I thanked him for helping to change the course of America and to raise the level of common decency in the American South.
History matters. It's our roadmap to the future, showing us where we went wrong, how we tried to get it right, and what mistakes to avoid. Hubert Humphrey was not a perfect man, but he was someone with power who, at a critical juncture in history, changed the trajectory of the 20th century and beyond by using his voice and speaking truth to power. Right now in our country, powerful forces are again working to roll back critical civil rights protections. From abortion to LGBTQ rights to ballot access and police violence, student debt, and so much more. These agents of hate are endangering our way of life and even our very nation. Looking into history to those in the past who confronted similar forces and shoved them back into the dark places they belong can inspire and inform us as we take up their fight. Each of us has a voice, and those voices have never been more important. While we look at the big national stage and see some of their leaders whipping the extremists into a frenzy, the real harm is so often being done in our town governments, our school boards, and our state legislators. It's being done in our neighborhoods by people we know, people who have to answer to us by people we can beat in the next election. You can make change happen. If you don't, the wrong kinds of change will surely win. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.